Welcome to season two of Talkin' Turns, where we take turns talking and the talk takes a turn. I'm your host, George Knapp. Just a friendly reminder, this show contains adult content and is for mature audiences only. Hi, Dennis. George, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining me. I'm here with uh, Major General Dennis Leach, retired Army, and who's also one of my best friends, if not my best friend. So it, it, it's difficult for me to spit all that other stuff out because I just know him as Dennis. Appreciate your time. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the sustainability of the all-volunteer force. We're going to talk a little bit about maybe some other military-related issues and projects Dennis has been working on. And then I'm going to have uh, a lightning round of some questions at the end. I just want your quick uh, opinion on some general things that are going on in the world. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of your book that's been published now for five years, Skin in the Game, Poor Kids and Patriots, and the all-volunteer force um, form. Yeah, well, I spent uh, 35 years in the military, and uh, all of it was fast-paced and didn't really have a chance to think much or reflect on much. But uh, once I retired in 2006, I had the uh, opportunity to reflect a little bit on the military and uh, what it is and what it isn't. And um, I, I guess the summary would be that... Uh, in 1973, two things happened in the United States or in Washington, D.C. that changed the social fabric or affected the social fabric of our country. The first one was the uh, decision on Roe versus Wade, uh, and uh, the second one was the all-volunteer force. Now, Roe versus Wade was litigated and um, uh, argued about and uh, tried in court, et cetera, et cetera, continues to be every day. But the uh, the all-volunteer force has never been questioned as a uh, the best way to man our military or what its uh, unintended consequences might be. But the consequence is that 330 million Americans lay claim to rights, liberties, and securities that not a single one of them is obligated to protect and defend. And that falls largely to a uh, very small, less than 1% of the American population, primarily from the third and fourth socioeconomic quintiles of our country that, uh, that protect and defend these uh, liberties is under the uh, all-volunteer force format. And the question I ask in the, uh, in the book is uh, whether the all-volunteer force is fair, efficient, and sustainable. And since I've written it, uh, also question whether it contributes or what effect it has on the civil military gap and the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. Okay, so would it be fair to say that um, your main goal or your stated goal is to develop a national dialogue on the subject? A national dialogue, but that's, that's fact-based. There's a lot of myths around the military. There's a lot of myths around uh, conscription and uh, the all-volunteer force. But I think the most important thing is it would be fact-based and comprehensive. So do you have specific direction that you would like to see that discussion take other than being fact-based? Um, or are you open to problem solving in a more broader view? And or I'm, I'm assuming you have opinions. I mean, yeah. you, you can say that, yeah, your agenda is to, to have the dialogue, which is probably critical. But at the end of the day, I'm sure you have some definite opinions about certain things like conscription, those kind of things. Well, I, I think that the important thing is to have the dialogue because unless and until you have the dialogue and reach a consensus on 
whether it's fair, efficient, sustainable, whether it's working today and will work in the future, you can't get to an alternative. There's no reason to have an al- to, to discuss an alternative if the consensus is after the fair, uh, uh, comprehensive, rigorous, fact-based dialogue, if you the, the consensus is that it's working, then you don't have to look at alternatives. But I think the most important thing as a predicate to that uh, look at alternatives is that you have the, the fact-based dialogue. And uh, if you decide it can, as a consensus after having the dialogue that it's not working, then you can get into the, the alternatives. And uh, um, I think there are alternatives that uh, we've not explored that uh, that need to be looked at in the event that uh, there's agreement that it's not fair, not efficient, not sustainable, and uh, has these other unintended consequences. Okay, so talk to me then a little bit about, okay, so the three things you talked about were fairness, efficiency, sustainability. So let's talk about each one of those topics. Yeah, fine. Uh, the, the fairness issue comes up because uh, if you look at the, the way the military is manned today, the military comes primarily from the third and fourth socioeconomic quintiles of our country. The first socioeconomic quintile has basically been been given a mass exemption from military service. And even if you look at the way the uh, we recruit, we recruit based on on financial incentives that are disproportionately attractive to the third and fourth socioeconomic quintiles. Most people don't realize that today a recruit off the street can get a $40,000 enlistment bonus just to, to sign up. No skill sets, no training, nothing, just to join $40,000. Now, I I will buy into it being an all-volunteer force, but if it's an all-volunteer force, why do you have to pay somebody $40,000 to volunteer? If it's an all-volunteer force, then let's do away with the incentive bonuses. I'm not, I'm not uh, denying or, or uh, saying that they shouldn't be paid, but let's just call a spade a spade here and identify that it is disproportionately attractive to the third and fourth socioeconomic quintiles of the country and irrelevant to the first socioeconomic quintile. So to continue that thought then, if it's um, somewhat irrelevant to the first socioeconomic quintile, those tend to also be people that are in positions of decision-making power, et cetera, et cetera, influence, if not um, the politicians themselves, certainly people that can influence those politicians. Absolutely. So. And it, and it, it affects uh, the, the next generation. I mean, the, uh, the young people serving in our military today uh, will be the, uh, or, or in that age group, will be the decision makers and the influencers of the next generation without any military experience. And, and we're seeing this throughout society. We're seeing it, uh, uh, for instance, in Congress. The, uh, the, the Congress that, that was just expired had the smallest number of uh, um, military veterans in the history of our nation. And I'm not saying that great military wisdom or, or national security wisdom comes from a, a couple of years serving in the military, but it does give a sense of uh, what the sacrifices are. Okay. So then when it comes to efficiency, so how does the um, current format, at least, of the yeah. ABF uh, impact efficiency? Well, there, there are two <laughs> that, I, that I like to use as examples. The first one at the strategic level and the other one at the operational level or the tactical level. At the strategic level, we're unable to expand and contract the size of the force in order to accommodate the needs of the uh, the day. When, when we entered into Iraq in... Uh, 2002, after the 9-11, or into Afghanistan after the uh, 9-11 attacks, we had um, more war than we had warriors. So we couldn't expand because uh, uh, we, we just couldn't get enough people to volunteer. So we made a number of accommodations. We lowered standards. We, we 
We had repeat deployments that were contrary to longstanding policy. We uh, we used so uh, for uh, most of my audience is non-military. So um, explain to them the longstanding policy on repeat deployments. Yeah, we we had a uh, longstanding policy that um, for every year in combat there would be two years out of combat in order to recover from the stress of uh, of combat. And uh, soon after we we entered the war, we realized that this wasn't going to work. We just didn't have enough uh, people to to rotate and accommodate that policy. So that one that, that one to two policy, longstanding, became a one-to-one or even less. We had some cases where, where uh, soldiers and Marines in particular were, were returning to combat in, in Iraq or Afghanistan with less than a year to recover from their previous tour. And there were all sorts of accommodations that we made to that. We, uh, we, we used prescription psychotropic drugs that were uh, previously uh, not allowed to deal with uh, combat stresses of anxiety, depression, and um, anger management with, with long-term consequences that uh, uh, we're still paying the price for as a society. And um, So to, a, to a, I'm sorry, to a, a layperson, though, some might think, well, we have this giant military footprint across the world. We still have bases in Europe that were pretty much have been there unchanged to some extent since the Second World War. We have a presence in Okinawa, Japan, that certainly was a result of the Second World War. Um, we, we have um, bases in other places, including the Middle East and, and West Asia. So, so why can't you just take people from Okinawa, for example, and put them into, or South Korea and put them into a theater if the demand calls for, for it? Well, I'm just trying to simplify the argument. Yeah. I know, I know. From a military perspective, you this is like chewing gum and walking at the same time. But for my audience, I'm really trying to get into their head and say, what kind of questions might they? Yeah, the uh, the, the fact is that we do have a, a unique worldwide footprint. We have uh, a military presence in almost 70 percent of the 192 countries throughout the world. There's a, a great book out that uh, describes this. I forget the author right now called Base Nation. And the the fact of the matter is that uh, there. Even when you have this crisis uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places, you still have the same reason to have the footprint there in in these other places at the same time. The fact that you have the the acute crisis in Iraq or Afghanistan doesn't mean that the other crises or the other potential demands went away just because you have this acute crisis. So it's a a tough trade-off to make, but frankly, I think that we have too many bases in too many parts of the world would be better to uh, uh, pull in our our, uh, our scope a little bit and um, uh, not be uh, stretched as far as we are today. Okay, so 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 then from the strategic standpoint, your point was that you you can't deploy uh, flex your deployments under we, the current process. Well, you, you no no no. It's not that you, you you can not only not flex your deployments, but you can't flex the size right, of the force, right, the right, base right. size of the force. Right. You can't take somebody from somewhere and put them somewhere yeah. else if they're already on when, a, when, a, a when we had a conscripted army. Because what people may not understand is that being in Okinawa, for example, or being in South Korea, that is a deployment. That is not, yeah. you know, if you're not in a, on home soil in a, in a city, yeah. um, but maybe people don't understand that, yeah. I guess is the point I'm trying to so the, the, make. But there's that. a twofold issue here. The first one is the, the one we've concentrated on right here in, in terms of, of other locations and deployments mm-hmm. in other parts of the world. But the other fact is that we just couldn't expand the size of the force. 
that, right. that people did not want to join. Simply by, by the nature of it being vol volunteer. Exactly. Or even partially um, um, incentivized. incentivized. There, there was never enough of an incentive. Absolutely, we had we had, we had more, that, right? we had we had far more award than we had warriors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So then, from the uh, um, tactical standpoint, yeah, from the tactical standpoint, it's kind of interesting. Most people don't realize how many recruiters we have, and I, I, um, I often go back to this when we have the uh, U.S. Army Recruiting Command, and and the the um, uh, Army is always the most troubled in terms of uh, strength issues. It's either the uh, tip of the spear, the canary in the coal mine, depending upon your perspective. But um, uh, U.S. Army Recruiting Command. Uh, has almost 10,000 soldiers assigned to U.S. Army Recruiting Command. And, in and, this, many, and it, so what you're telling me is it takes 10,000 people to recruit 70,000 people a, a year? Exactly. Good math. Wow. Good math. Yeah, it's it's one okay, that should sink in. I mean, that's it's just that's a, something it, should not be lost. And, yeah. and even last year, with I don't even but, think Alabama's football team has a one to seven. <laughs> <laughs> but here's here's the, the the rub on that is that you have these um, uh, almost ten thousand uh, recruiters running around the United States. But in many cases, these are some of the best, particularly NCOs, the non commissioned officers. These are some of the best that we have. And rather than have them be in in uh, at Fort Jackson training our young soldiers, or at Fort Sill, or in um, uh, in Germany, okay. or wherever, um, we we have them running around the streets of uh, Columbus, Ohio, and Darlington, South Carolina, trying to get young people to join the military. And right. uh, uh, no one ever joined the military in order to be a recruiter, but here we are. This is what we're doing, and it uh, it, it has an effect on the efficiency of the military. And and George mentioned George, you mentioned uh, the the seventy thousand. Just to put it in perspective, uh, and and go back to the issue we were talking about before about being able to attract the size of the force. Last year, uh, the U.S. Army, and again the tip of the spear, the canary in the coal mine, whatever it is, uh, had an initial objective to recruit seventy eighty thousand new soldiers into the military. A few months into the fiscal year, they reduced that to 76,500. They were, in fact, only able to recruit 70,000. Of those 70,000 young Americans that they did recruit, 10 to 12 percent of them required waivers for some sort of uh, deficiency and, and variation from standard in the recruiting. Uh, so, what kind of standards would those be? Um, well, physical, yeah, physical, um, physical, mental, police, yeah, police record, okay, right, the, the okay. whole, the whole gamut. And one point. So, there's a specific set of standards that allegedly need well, to be met in I would order put to quotation marks around right, okay. those standards. Right, that's what I'm saying. Allegedly, yeah. but let's let's say there there is a if a minimum there's a checklist in theory, that you go through and say, okay, for this person to be a viable recruit, they must meet this physical, intellectual, uh, criminal background, um, age, whatever the you know situation might be, gender. I'm sure there's, you don't just, I'm sure they don't turn female recruits away, but I'm sure there's a minimum number of male recruits targeted or not. Not really. Not really? No. I find that to be a bit surprising. Well, uh, good. You're learning something <laughs> from your own podcast. <laughs> well... Part of why I do it. No, the uh, the the army, uh, really, the entire military is is probably the most gender neutral uh, large organization in the United States. All of the combat positions in uh, the military, virtually across the board, uh, in the last few years, have been open to females. Okay, 
So, but I, I was going to say go that, that of these 70,000 that were recruited, mm-hmm. 10 to 12% right. required waivers, and 1.9% were what are called Category 4 recruits. And a Category 4 recruit is a recruit that, that scores between the 10th and the 31st percentile on the Army Aptitude Test. And there are studies done that these category of recruits consistently underperform their more higher scoring peers in the, the service once they, they reach the, uh, the force. So um, compromises have been made across the board, notwithstanding the huge efforts that we make in recruiting. But the, the fact of the matter is that um, the, the pool of recruits that are available uh, I, I call this uh, all-volunteer force arithmetic. Only three out of 10 uh, Americans in the age group 10, 18 to 24 meet the minimum standards for enlistment into the U.S. military. Right. Say that percentage again. Only three out of 10, 30%. Okay. okay. And of those, only 15% uh, have what's called a propensity to serve. So, so that you, math says 4.5%. Well, you get to a pretty low number, yeah, it's a low and number, and right. and here's here's the rub. Here's the rub, and and what I refer to as all volunteer force arithmetic. And I, I hope that you and your listeners can follow me in this. Um, about four million young people turn um, eighteen every year in the United States. These are approximate figures. About three out of ten can meet the minimum requirements. So that gets you to about a million two. Mm-hmm who are um, uh, able to serve, that, that can meet mm-hmm. the minimum standards. If you take that 15%, that gets you down to about a uh, 180,000. 180, right. So every year the military has to recruit among the five services about 150,000 people to, to regenerate the military. So that makes a pretty tight window. But here's the thing, that, that 180,000 represent those that are both willing and able. If you just looked at the willing or the able, I'm sorry, uh, you'd get a million twenty thousand. So the question is, do we get a higher quality force if we're drawing the hundred and fifty thousand from a pool of one hundred and eighty thousand or a pool of one point one point two million? And you can make your own judgment on that and look at the consequences. But my guess is that that in that that delta between 180,000 and a million are a few national merit scholars who would make wonderful intel or, or cyber warriors and probably a few all-conference linebackers who would make great infantrymen, but they're not attracted to the military. So when we talk about the efficiency and the quality of the military as a whole, you can take a look at that all-volunteer force arithmetic. And, and oh, by the way, the cost of uh, enlisting those soldiers goes away if you look at that willing and able exactly. because you don't have to pay the enlistment bonuses. And, and just to put another number in the, uh, the hopper, year before last, the Army, the Army alone paid $427 million in enlistment bonuses. $427 million. 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 A half billion dollars. You can you can build a lot of elementary schools or build a few bridges or tunnels in the United States for a half billion dollars. Wow. Okay. So now I'll talk about uh, sustainability. That's the third uh, yeah, leg of the yeah. The sustainability. The, pool, so the sustainability is primarily a uh, an issue of how long 
on the one hand, from a personnel standpoint, the, the military can go on with these reduced standards and, and the band-aids that they're putting on. But the other one is that, that the, the all-volunteer force is a very expensive uh, operation. And we have a country now that's $23 trillion in debt, running trillion-dollar deficits for the foreseeable future. And the fact is that, that we always had the, the thing in, in economics, at least Economics 101 a long time ago when I studied it as a college freshman, was guns versus butter. And that's always the trade-off between domestic issues and military issues, and it's always been a, a tough one for the United States to balance. But the, the, the defense budget runs around 700 $750 billion a year. And that doesn't include some of the ancillary uh, costs. You know, I often ask audiences, is the, is the VA budget, for instance, part of the defense budget? And most audiences say, I haven't really thought about it. But the fact is, it, it's not. And many would argue that it should be. But the, 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 the VA budget this year that's being proposed is $220 billion. So this gets very... Now you're talking to a trillion... Basically, now oh, you're up to every oh, bit it, of a trillion. It, it's 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 really over a trillion because the uh, my my uh, some friends who do a lot of work with the uh, with the budget when you. Add in Homeland Security, for instance, when you add in the, the cost of the nuclear uh, uh, arsenal, which is part of the energy department right, in most cases, right. the, the cost is probably closer to a trillion and a half. Okay. So uh, the sustainability issue is going to be primarily personnel. How long can we continue to, to accommodate the, the declining uh, pool of people who are able and the declining people, the declining pool of people who are willing. And the other one is cost. And, um, let me just, let me just tell you where the, 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 the guns versus butter, uh, dynamic and the tension is going. We paid last year before last $261 billion in interest on the debt. This year, we will pay $379 billion in interest on the debt. If you take a look at a $32 trillion debt by 2028, which is what the Congressional Budget Office projects, at 3%, you have a trillion dollars a year in interest. And we've, we've, we've proven that we can ignore the debt. We've proven that we can ignore the deficit, but you can't ignore the interest. You have to pay the interest. And that's where guns versus butter will become guns versus butter versus interest by mm -hmm. 2028. Would you say that the, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but would you say that the the national debt is currently one of the top three to five most uh, existential problems that America is facing over Absolutely. the next decade? Absolutely. I, I can't believe that we're in the midst of, we've just gone through a, a, a presidential election a couple of years ago, a midterm election, and now we're in the midst of a presidential election and it's not on anybody's uh, radar and nobody's talking about it. I, I, I really think it is a major issue um, that we can't grow our way out of and uh, ultimately we'll have to pay the price for. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about regarding the all-volunteer force and or, um, you know, you can you can pimp your book a little bit. You can pimp the uh, um, AVF form. That's oh. is that that's that was part of your doing, right? Or that's oh, yeah. your entirely yeah. your 
yeah. you're doing? Well, I wouldn't say entirely. My uh, my partner in crime there was a fellow named Larry Wilkerson, who uh, is an Army veteran, served as Colin Powell's chief of staff at both the State Department and the uh, uh, Defense Department, but we haven't talked about the the the, uh, the the fourth and fifth consequence of the all volunteer force, okay. that being the Sorry. civil military gap and the uh, and the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. All right, go ahead, do that, and then I want to hear a little bit more about projects going forward, and then I'm going to do the lightning round questions. All right, good, so good. So yeah, t- talk about the uh, civil civil military gap. Yeah, the the civil military gap. Many people in the United States, uh, pundits, politicians, uh, and 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 the military, and even hosts of podcasts, <laughs> talk about the civil military gap. And and uh, you know, we we become a country where where it's rare to have a family member a uh, who served in the military or serving in the military. Our military has gotten small. One of the things I didn't talk about before is that uh, one of the effects uh, of the uh, uh, demise of the Soviet Union in the early 90s was that we were able to reduce the size of the uh, active military force from 2.1 million uh, personnel to about 1.3 million and have been able to maintain that since uh, 1991. But the civil military gap is a real issue because the uh, there are fewer and fewer people who served in the military and fewer and fewer people who understand the military and it's it's become uh, uh, relatively easy for the uh, uh, military service to be trivialized I, I can tell you that one of the things that uh, irritates me a bit and now because I've probably been uh, a little older and a little more of a curmudgeon is that when people come up to me and say, thank you for your service, uh, one of the things I wonder if I don't say it is that uh, after telling them you're welcome is, did you serve and why not? If not, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's it's one of the, the tough questions that we need to ask ourselves, but we we patronize the military and, and even even the idea of referring to everyone who serves in the military as a hero. I don't think there's anybody who serves in the military, including someone who's wearing a silver star or bronze star, who sees themselves as a hero. Especially th- probably those guys. Especially them. At least the ones I've met. Uh, and and but it's a, it's a way for I think in some cases to to relieve tension or guilt at not having served yourself. So uh, uh, this is a tough issue, but it's it's made uh, it's been exacerbated and made much more severe by the uh, by the all volunteer force, where we we basically given a mass exemption to every American from military service. It, when when we were we had a conscripted force fought prior to 1973, exemptions were. were valued and sometimes uh, misused. But the fact of the matter is that uh, we've given an exemption to every American. And and this goes back, this issue goes back centuries. You know, there's a, uh, in the uh, Peloponnesian Wars, there's a line from Demosthenes who says, uh, the source of all your defeats, O Athenians, O Athenians, is that your soldier, your citizens have ceased to be soldiers. And in the United States, it's a it's an issue that uh, we we should be engaging in as part of this national dialogue. Okay, and then the fifth aspect. Yeah, the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. You know, every time you you hear an issue where we say yes, we uh, will use diplomacy, but you say the the military option is still on the table. It we we it makes it far too easy for the United States to go to war and stay at war. You know, one of the things I found is that one of my colleagues in the All Volunteer Force Forum, which I guess we'll talk about in a minute, is uh, uh, General 
Carl Eikenberry, who was the uh, commander in uh, Afghanistan and then subsequently became the uh, ambassador to Afghanistan. And uh, both General Eikenberry and I found, independently of one another, that, that we went through the same thought exercise with audiences when we speak, and that was to ask the question, uh, given the fact that we invaded Iraq in 2003, if we had a conscripted force, if we had a draft, how long would we have stayed? And rarely does anyone in the experience of either one of our asking the question, does someone stay that we would have stayed beyond, say that we would have stayed beyond 2005? Mm-hmm. It's very rare. And think about it. We've been at war in, in Afghanistan for 18 years. Where's the outrage? Where's the, who, who's going to be the last person to die in Afghanistan in a failed war? And if we had, uh, other than a, if we had a conscripted military, would we view service and the sacrifice differently than we do today? We, 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 we rationalize it by saying, well, they volunteered. They knew what they were getting into. But guess what? The, the danger is the same and the, the soldiers do their mission, but the American people view it differently. Okay, so um, want to speak about the AVF Forum some more? Yeah, the AVF Forum. Uh, uh, shortly after I read, read, wrote the book, I, I was uh, pretty comfortable with uh, the, the the content of uh, Skin in the Game, Poor Kids and Patriots, and um, uh, had a uh, dialogue with Larry Wilkerson, uh, who I mentioned before and your your guests might have heard of and and might see on uh he's been on Bill Maher he's been on uh, uh MSNBC and pretty well respected guy and um currently teaches at William and Mary and Larry and I got together and decided this was something important that needed to be discussed and we've uh, since engaged a number of uh, about 40 members of the all volunteer force uh, forum and uh, they include uh, Andrew Basevich up at uh, Boston University, David Kennedy out at uh, Stanford, Aubrey Sarvis at, uh, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., who was with the uh, Service Members Legal Defense Network and was the uh, critical player in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, Rocky Blyer from the Pittsburgh Steelers and a number of they others. They had to throw that in, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but um, uh, we decided that... that that in order to advance this uh, national dialogue, we needed to find a, a forum to do it. And uh, the first thing was to man the forum and then um, find a way to, to, to kind of get a platform. And each year since 2016, we've had a full day forum uh, with speakers to, on, on both all sides of the issue, all aspects of the issue. Uh, the first one was in 2016 at uh, the University of Kansas. And then we had... Uh, Forum in 2017, uh, the College of William and Mary in 2018 at uh, Ohio State University, the Ohio State University. This this year, this year. <laughs> Although I attended that and it was an excellent uh, conference, but uh, yeah, th- this regardless, year, in spite th- of the location. This year at uh, Angelo State in uh, uh, Texas, and then. Uh, Next year, we'll be at Catholic University in Washington, D.C., which should be interesting given the fact that this is an election year and uh, Washington is always uh, intriguing. But uh, this issue being raised in Washington, D.C. in election year should be very interesting. Well, still even in Texas. I mean, Texas seems to be getting a lot of play, um, you know, it becoming more purple. No one's yeah. no one's convinced, and, and certainly I'm not convinced, that it's going to be a red state, I mean, a blue state anytime yeah. soon. But it's certainly... Uh, um, 
becoming red, more blueish. Yeah, the thing is, though, that that this is uh, th- this issue of manning the military is is not really a red or blue or conservative. No, my only point bringing issue. that up was when you talked about locations was to say that Texas is getting a lot more focus politically yeah. than it maybe yeah. has had since the Bushes left. Well, know, it's it's not only the Bushes left, but uh, there's a lot of uh, immigration into right. Texas that uh, is. Uh, uh, Different from the the stereotypical long-standing Texan wearing boots and a string tie, uh, you get uh, a lot of uh, Mexicans wearing boots and string ties. Yeah, well, Hispanics mm-hmm. coming into the country, and also or Central uh, Americans, yeah. people coming there for for jobs from other parts of the country. And, and Texas has a, an attractive economic base with right. very Houston's low taxes. now the fourth largest city. Yeah, um, and they even attract uh, immigration from Africa yeah. and South America and Europe. Yeah, um, so the demographics in the Texas are changing. But, there. but, yeah. but what what I what what we find is that um, this uh, th- this really isn't a uh, a red or blue issue. And and the other one that, that we find so often is that um, people once they engage in the issue a little bit, realize, yeah, this is something that, that has been either a blind spot or something that I'm uncomfortable talking about. Mm-hmm. But now that it's raised, let's let's go ahead and have the discussion. Right. But it's it's not it's not an issue that people speak out or seek out in order to make themselves feel mm-hmm. more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately that's the case with many issues that we're facing exactly. right now. But uh I guess that's why we face them is because we need to have the dialogue. I mean, I was just the last couple, three podcasts I've done, my guests have been quite diverse in topic and uh, individually diverse. But uh, one of the common themes has been, you know, dialogue enriches our lives and enriches our ability to to solve problems. And and the, the unfortunate thing with the red and blue and the unfortunate thing with the polarization in America that seems to have accelerated recently. Maybe it's just, uh, uh, you know, maybe that's not true, but it certainly feels to most Americans that it has. That uh, lack of dialogue is, is is problematic in and of itself, you know. Um, I mean, if I was going to be a champion of something, that might be the thing I would champion would be, you know, dialogue about why don't we have dialogue? It's the, the undiscussable <laughs> and the undiscussability. Yes. Because, you know, my pet, my, some of my pet topics include, you know, Israel and other things that Tend to be undis, you know, undiscussable. So the, the, I, I would just, I would just uh, uh, add to that that, um, in addition to the dialogue, I, I think there, there, you, you can have dialogue, um, but there has to be some level of civility and and uh, humility and and mutual respect. You can have a, a dialogue that. Uh, you walk away from it and you say, well, I was, I was uh, nice. I heard what he had to say. But you can get a dialogue of the deaf too. Right. And you can also have, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to act. I mean, yeah. you can, you, yeah. dialogue is obviously a place to start. And, and, and I think we both agree that, that it's a start. But at some point, fundamentally, you're going to have to act either by choice or by necessity. And our Common background. Dennis and I have been friends for, I hate to even say the number, 30 years now. Yeah, I think it was 30 years. And even in a business environment that we work together in, you know, you're much more comfortable as a business manager um, and leader um, to to be in a position where you can make decisions while you still have options and choices. When your back's against the wall, your options become very limited. Your time scope becomes very stressed. And so you may not be thinking as clearly as you should or could. You don't have time to do research and understand the, the, all the facts together. 
So obviously, acting sooner than later is yeah. is, is clearly and you know to desirable get, to, to get <laughs> to get us back on point here. Talking about the all volunteer force, okay. you know, uh, my my uh, my co founder, the AVF, always uh, uses his example. You know, the time to deal with this issue, which is basically how do we man our military on a sustained, sustainable, high quality basis, is not the period of time between the moment that the the aircraft carrier in the Taiwan Straits is hit by a torpedo and goes to the bottom of the Taiwan Straits. That's not the time to answer the, the question on whether the AVF is working and will work in the future. It's now. If, if the time that you do it is, is uh, when the torpedo hits the aircraft carrier in the Taiwan Straits, it's, too late. it's way too late. And, and you know, I, I just point out one other thing about that, too. There has never been a mass mobilization for a war in the United States without conscription. If we think that we can do that again, if you look at the, the national security assessment, there are three levels of threat that the national security assessment speaks to. They speak to Russia and China on one level. That's the primary threat. Iran and North Korea, a second level. That's the, 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 the secondary threat. And the, the tertiary threat is terrorism. If you think for a moment that, that we're, man, we're spending $700 billion to a, to a set to answer a threat, but at the same time, uh, that, that being China and, and uh, Russia, that's the, where the principal dollars go. If you think at the same time that we're being responsible by not being able to man the military to, to, to respond to that threat, if you think we can fight a war with China with a population three times the size of ours, or Russia with a nuclear arsenal that's as big as ours and, and um, p better positioned certainly in Europe than we are to fight a war without being able to tap into those who are able but unwilling, I, I want some of whatever it is you're smoking. It's not going to happen. It's never happened in our history. It's a good point. Salient, right direct to the point. In the five years since you wrote the book, what, if anything, has has changed for the better? And what, if anything, has been um, – have you seen the amplitude grow more than you thought it would regarding the, the issues surrounding the all-volunteer force? When you say, have any, has anything changed, I, 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 what do you mean? With regard to opening the dialogue or – Yes, anything positive. Yeah, I, I, anything, I think, I'm looking for I, something I, positive and something yeah, I, surprising. Yeah, I, I think I think that by virtue of of the things that I and others have written and the seminars that we've had at the the various universities and other places, I think we're raising the issue. I think there's a little more visibility. But as we said, this is something that most people don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that we found is that it's interesting is that there are very few people who, when they are exposed to the facts around the all-volunteer force and not drinking the Kool-Aid of the myths of the military, say, yeah, there, there just might be a problem here. But, but it's not something people want to think about. It's not something that the, even the, the, the Pentagon is comfortable talking about. Nobody wants to, to, to attack. So what's the, the, there's one other okay, thing that we found that's interesting. There's a myth out there that um, uh, those who were drafted resent their service. And this is anecdotal. There is no hard evidence of this. But every time I see a person 
walking down the street in an airport, a, a shopping mall or on the street, who has the uh, Vietnam or career, Korea War veteran hat on, usually a black hat with gold lettering. I make it a point, as I do every veteran, to, to talk to them and thank them for their service. But then I ask the, the Korea or the Vietnam vet, were you drafted? And uh, usually they'll ask, why do you ask? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, if they were drafted, I'll ask them, were you, do you resent your service? Mm-hmm. Do you resent the fact that you were drafted, that mm-hmm. you were forced to go to war? Right. And I haven't found one yet. And mm-hmm. I probably have 100 or 120, maybe 150 instances mm-hmm. of, of this dialogue taking mm-hmm. place. But here's the other thing that I have found. Uh, but, but most of them just resent the fact that the Vietnam draft in particular was an extremely unfair, poorly executed mm-hmm. draft. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to factor that in when you right. study the, right. uh, the issue. But here's the other thing I've found uh, as I've gone around the country the last five or six years. There have been a number of men who are, are accomplished, somewhat accomplished, maybe not all that accomplished in their civilian life, but uh, who have said to me, who have not served in the military, who have said, you know, looking back on it, I wish I had. I missed something in my life. I, I wish I had served. And, and uh, you know, at the time, I, I came up with some sort of rationale, reason, good, bad, or indifferent for not doing it. But I've found dozens of men who have been willing to admit to me, volunteer Mm -hmm. to admit to me that they they wish they had served. So I I think there are some myths that that need to be overcome uh, about military service. And those are are a couple of things that I've learned over the last couple of years that have really surprised me. What's um, something that's gotten worse at a a, a higher amplitude or at a steeper curve than you thought that it impacts um, the AVF? I, I think the uh, the overall uh, tone of the country uh, where we have less um, faith in government, less civility, less um, uh, respect for patriotism, for true patriotism, I, I think that there's been a, a, a crass behavior that, that's become more acceptable in the United States over the last uh, several years that makes it more difficult for, for us to be willing to, to volunteer to, to support the, uh, the government initiatives. And, um, but it, it permeates not only the military, but also all of society. All right, cool. So um, here's, some, here's some lightning round questions. <laughs> um, uh, some to do, do these with, have to be yes, no, or no? Well, it's short as you can answer. Okay, okay. Going back to capability, um, you know, I know what your capabilities are when it comes to answering questions, and sometimes you get you can get uh, lengthy. So do your best to be brief. Okay, and some will, like I said, some will deal with the military, and some will be um, just political or geopolitical or just generic questions. Okay, so we're going to start the lightning round with what do you think the top three national security threats are today, as we sit here in this dining room. I, I think that depending upon how how long a horizon you look at, I think that um, uh, climate change and, and um, uh, that the, the, all of the, the factors around it is the uh, existential threat. I think that uh, the second one is uh, uh, the national debt and national deficit. 
and the impacts on that and, and the fact that the deeper we get into debt, then the more difficult it makes it for us to adjust to the first existential threat. And I think the third one is is uh, the threat we pose to ourselves in terms of uh, an absence of civility and an accommodation to mediocrity, whether we're talking about uh, uh, obesity. When I talk about mediocrity, I mean, I, I look at uh, our nation as a whole and I look at uh, – uh, failing public schools that are falling behind other countries in terms of math and, and reading capability. I look at uh, a country that uh, is has a, a severe opioid crisis and, and other addiction issues. I, I look at obesity. So I, I think that, that, that this is a, a strange way of looking at it, but I think that uh, the, the third element that I'd, I'd answer in, in answer to your question is that we, we, we present a threat to ourselves. And then, um, what do you believe, um, regardless of whether the um, there's a there is a national dialogue on um, the volunteer force, whether there is a war that breaks out or whatever the cause or reason, what do you think the odds of us returning to conscription are, or, or the draft, as people prefer to call it for whatever reason, in the next decade? Depends what happens in the next decade. Here, here here's here's <laughs> yeah. the thing: if war breaks but out everything tomorrow, depends on what everything. Yeah, I mean, if if ever if war breaks out tomorrow, uh, a major war with Russia or China, mm-hmm. it, it happens tomorrow, mm-hmm. the day the day after. Right. I, I think there are three things that will drive a return to conscription. Uh, the first one is that under any circumstances, we will not be able to get even a marginally qualified sufficient number of people to join our military. That's the first one. The second one is that we will be unable to afford it. And that will occur, I mean, you know, in the next 10 years, debt will go to $32 trillion. Uh, will we be able to pay for the all volu- will we be will, will, will we be able to pay a half billion dollars in, in enlistment bonuses in addition to a trillion dollars in interest on the debt? And the third one is is the one we talked about, the uh, the existential war that requires a mass mobilization. So one of, three th- one of those three things is going to happen okay. uh, in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. But, Potentially uh, all three could happen. All three could happen. So painting uh, that rosy picture that you've painted in the last uh, 15 minutes, <laughs> what's one thing you're optimistic about? I, I, I'm optimistic, guardedly optimistic. <laughs> but, Don't pull the punches. If you, but, uh, but, but optimistic about our ability to recover from a punch. I, I think that, that uh, there's a distinct possibility that America may take a punch in the face. And, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, it's one thing to take the punch, but it's another for a boxer to recover. And I think that uh, America historically has taken some punches in the Depression, in, in various wars, in, in other issues. And I, uh, I, I have some faith in the resiliency. The only thing is that I, I wonder uh, how heavy the punch is going to be and how good the follow-up. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, I have some faith in the resiliency of the American people to recover. Okay. Kind of circling back around, I mean, one thing I've always wondered about 9-11, having the anniversary just been this past week, was that a missed opportunity in, in, in a, a very broad way? Was it a missed opportunity maybe for us to do some things differently, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty that may have dramatically improved um, both budgetarily our current position as well as um, our relationship with the Islamic world. Absolutely. We, uh, and without getting into like a 40-minute a dissertation, can you kind of just encapsulate those two? Sure. I, uh, I, I think that uh, we were a mission accomplished in Afghanistan three or four months after we invaded. We, uh, we should have left after three or four months. 
We're still there. We should have never invaded Iraq. Okay. Need any more? Now, those are pretty good ones. I think that uh, they talk about both issues. They talk about the trillions of dollars. They talk about the thousands of lives. And they also talk about our uh, relationship with the Islamic world. I think, obviously, whether it's Shia versus Sunni, whatever, internal type strife, you know, 18 years of war against a more or less a class of people, um, even though they are quite diverse class of people, um, is is not a good... Uh, that's not, that's not, that's not, that wouldn't be a good lead in to a date. You know, I'm going to punch you f for the next 18 years and then expect you to yeah. hold my hand, yeah. you know, type of thing. Well, we, we've never been very good at appreciating other cultures and, and their values. Uh, we look at the world through our own lens and expect them to ha hold the same values and, mm -hmm. and objectives that we do. And, uh, there's been a history in my lifetime going back to Vietnam of, uh, right. of that. So and that's we're continuing frankly to irrational. Absolutely. That's just flat out irrational. And uh, that, that's one of the things that drives me crazy. Okay. One last round of lightning round questions. Who is going to be the Democratic nominee for president based on what you know right now sitting here at this table at this moment? Now, who do you want, but who do you think? I, I think Joe Biden. Okay. And do you think Biden will win the general election? I hope so. If he is, do you think he will? I, I think he will. Yeah. Okay. I, and, and here's the thing, you know, I, 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 earlier said what what you earlier you asked what mm -hmm. gives me hope mm -hmm. this will be a good reflection on an answer to my question about the resiliency and the uh, uh integrity of the american people i i think that um uh uh reelecting donald trump will be a uh, black mark on on uh, compounding history. a mistake mm -hmm. that's all i got that's all i that's all you need then that's all i need um i appreciate your time this was fun it's kind of weird to interview your best friend. It's uh, a lot more difficult than I thought it would be <laughs> because normally we just sit and talk about these things in a very relaxed um, fashion. And I'm trying to keep track of what's going on in the computer and, and making sure that the thing flows a little bit. And I'm obviously going to have a bunch of editing to do, but uh, I really appreciate your time. And it's good uh, fun. thanks. Thank you. Right, appreciate bye. it. Thank you for listening to talk and turns. Music's been provided by Mr. Scruffy. Some photography's been provided by Photographs by Andrea. Please visit our website at www.talkinturns.com. That's www.talkinturns.com. Talking Turns is copyrighted. Any use of this material requires the expressed written consent of George Knapp. Opinions expressed on Talking Turns are solely those of the speaking participants. These opinions do not in any way reflect the beliefs or opinions of our sponsors, associates, employers, or other individuals associated with this broadcast. Again, thanks for listening, and be kind to yourself. Music